Good morning. Thank you for all of you to come here today in this lovely Sunday morning. I would like to start by saying that it is obvious that Kabbalah or Jewish mysticism is one of those topics that everybody has an opinion on, although very few people have ever opened anything which refers directly to this topic. Why do we all have an opinion? Because Madonna had, yeah, you see, you all know, because Madonna had made wonderful public relations to the word Kabbalah. However, most people, I would say 99.9, in the circles where Madonna is staying or is busy with, have no idea what this topic is about. And let me start by saying that I'm positive that every human being of every kind has the full right to engage in any topic that one chooses. However, it is wise to discern between what are the things that are really are and what are new elaborations of them. So that being said, let me start by defining what is Jewish mysticism. Not what is being done in the West Coast, but what is Jewish mysticism and when and where and what it contains. And we would start by saying that one of the obvious markers of what we call Jewish mysticism is the fact that we are talking about a library. We are talking on thousands of pages that were written by people that could be defined as the losers, the vanquished, the sad ones, the exiled, the expelled, the banished ones, people that thought that literature is the only place of freedom. People who were denied any freedom and had decided to give up their own personal identity as authors for the sake of creating literature. Mystical literature is, mis is literature without authors. It means you can't ask who wrote the Book of Splendor because the answer that you would be given is a pseudo-epigraphic pseudo answer. That means the person who wrote it hide his name and describe the book to a person who never wrote it. But the person who does that, the person who really wrote the book, have a reason why he wouldn't reveal his name. Because it is not about personal inquiry. It is not about personal quest. And this is important because if there is anything which is the common denominator of the West Coast Kabbalah is that it is done by people who are busy with personal quest, which is perfectly all right, only this is not Kabbalah. People who are considering their name to be the major thing about their occupation are not mystics, vice versa. People who are mystics are people who deny their name and create great literature ascribed to entities which are not accessible. So if we understand that much, we are on the first step of understanding why there is a profound difference between what is called West Coast Kabbalah and between what is Kabbalah or Jewish mysticism. Let us start by explaining what is mysticism because we're going to use this word so we would have a common denominator. The word mysticism is derived from the word mystos in Greek, which means closing your eyes to this world. 
When you close your eyes to this world, it means that you deny the senses. You don't ascribe importance to the world of the senses when you do ascribe knowledge, when you do ascribe importance to other worlds. What are other worlds which are not worlds of the senses? We are all living in a world of the senses. We hear, we speak, we smell. What is a world which is not a world of the senses? This is a world which is revealed to you in times when you are not your own self, in your dreams, in a hallucinatory moment, at night, in a lunatic thing. It is not a rational world. It is not a sensual world. It is a world of dreams. It is a world of revelation. It is a world of prophecy. It is a world when you give up your rational judgment, but you are open to new experiences. Now, all of us dream, so we know what, the, what dreams means like. However, while all of us dream, not all of us ascribe meaning to their dreams. Now, it's not enough to be a dreamer in order to be a mystic. That, that helps, but that's not enough. The one thing that you need in order to be a mystic is, as I said, first, to close your eyes to this world and to concentrate on other worlds. Those other worlds are revealed to you in two major avenues. One is in dreams, in inspired moments, and the other is in the depths of the language and in the depths of memory. Thus, a person who does not know Hebrew and is not reading Aramaic cannot really be defined as mystic un under any condition. So people who study Kabbalah only in English cannot be defined as Kabbalists or people who are engaged in Jewish mysticism. The language is of utmost importance because according to the Jewish mystical tradition, language is sacred. Without that, there is no traditional, there is no mystical tradition. The language is sacred. The Hebrew language is considered to be divine. It's considered to be God's language. It's considered to be the language with which the world was created. And first and foremost, it is considered to be infinite. It means that every word of scriptures has many meanings, not one meaning, many meanings. When you are engaged in the mystical tradition, you are starting by the usual scriptures which are well known to us, the Torah. However, when you read scriptures, you don't read it for the sake of its literal level that you do on your daily life. But when you are engaged in the mystical process at night, outside of your daily life, when you are engaged in the mystical reading, you are trying to decipher the infinite meanings of the language, the divine meaning of the language, the symbolical meaning of the language, which transcends the border of the literal meaning. It's important to us to combine those elements, the infinite sacred language, the infinite meanings of every word in the sacred text, because sacred means infinite. Sacred means divine. The divine is infinite and multifaceted. The language is infinite and multifaceted. And this is the place where the human spirit and the divine spirit are meeting. Now, this is a world based on complete freedom of creativity. However, please remember, it is created by the vanquished, by the losers, by those that were bitten by history in such a horrible way that they cannot find any way to respond to it. Let me give one example. For the question, where does Jewish mysticism start? The answer is, 
in the decade that the temple was destroyed. The first temple was destroyed between 597 to 587 before the Common Era. The Jerusalem temple that had stood from the 10th century to the 6th century was destroyed by the Babylonians. At that time, the priest prophet Ezekiel was expelled from Jerusalem to Babylon. And when he heard about the complete destruction of the temple, he had a mystical moment. If you may recall the beginning, the first chapter of Ezekiel, he's standing by a river, he's been shown a reflection, and in the reflection on the river, he sees the heavenly chariot. What is the heavenly chariot? It is something which is very hard to describe because we haven't seen such a thing. It is what was in the inner part of the temple in Jerusalem. It is the ark, it is the cherubim above the ark, and it's the wheels on which the ark was standing. So the three components, the wheels, the ark, and the cherubim, all together are called chariot or divine chariot. Nobody had seen it, nobody saw it, because it was inside the temple, inside the Holy of Holies. There was one person, once a year, that was admitted to the Holy of Holies, that was the high priest. However, he didn't see it either, because he had to enter beyond the screen of incense, a very heavy screen of incense, so he could not see anything. It was the invisible sacred place, and the Emphasis is on the invisible. There has been no, vis no visual representation of the sacred that was revealed to anybody. It was there from the days of David and Solomon who had built the temple, so we are told by biblical historiography, but nobody had seen it. When the temple was destroyed, this representation of holiness was taken to Babylon or was confiscated or was raised to the ground. Anyhow, it was not available anymore and it was never reproduced because it was built according to the belief of the biblical story. It was built according to divine revelation that was imparted to Moses and to Moses alone in Sinai. The book of Exodus between chapters 19 to 25 describes the divine revelation, which includes the components of the sacred place. Moses had been shown the cherubim, the menorah, the ark, and he was instructed how to build it. He said that it's impossible, and God is consoling him and says, I would find for you a man who is inspired with great wisdom, talent, and insight, chokhmah, binah, vadat, and he would fashion this, those visions that you have been shown, according to the way that you will instruct him, and I will, I, God, will fill him with divine inspiration. The name of this man is Bezalel. That's the reason that until today the art school in Jerusalem is called Bezalel, because art, according to the Jewish perception, is something which requires divine inspiration and the capacity to translate the abstract into a concrete. But this is not a human engagement, this is a divinely inspired human engagement. This is a philosophy of art of great interest, 
for a culture that claims that one may not do any sculpture or any picture. This is vital because in the Ten Commandments we are told that we may not do anything to represent God in heaven or any divine representation. As I said, the only place, the only place where divine representations were available was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. But the temple was a vicinity. The Holy of Holies was a vicinity that was closed and invisible entirely. The temple was in Jerusalem from 10, 9, 8, 7, 6th century before the Common Era. It was raised to the ground in the decade between 597 to 587. The priest prophet Ezekiel was expelled and he had been shown a vision. What was the nature of his vision? He had been shown the heavenly chariot that supposedly was in the temple, but was no more. In the time that he had been shown the vision, there is no more earthly representation of the divine chariot. However, he had been shown the heavenly representation of it, and he could have assured his listeners that there is such a thing. Now, what is the thing about a vision exactly as it is about a dream? When you have a dream and you start the sentence, I have a dream, and in my dream I had seen, nobody can argue with you. You are the only individual which becomes the source of authority. Now, this is not funny. This is very important. Because people who wish to introduce new ideas, new visions, new challenges, often would say, I had a dream, and in my dream I had been shown this and that. Now, most times this is exactly true. People had had a dream, and people have been shown a vision, and this vision or dream was extremely meaningful. Only nobody can refute it. If you succeed to communicate your vision, dream, divine revelation, in words that would make it meaningful to your listeners, then your dream becomes a source of authority, a source of inspiration. It's important to understand that. Now, when a prophet said, I have been told from heaven, or I have been shown a vision, or I had a dream in which God had spoken with me, you cannot argue with that, because this is something that had happened in one's own spirit. And the spirit is not subjugated to other people's criticism. The outcome of the spirit, yes, but the spirit itself, nobody can say to Ezekiel, wrong, you have not been shown this dream. Nobody ever refuted his, his vision or his dream. And he had related it to the people, telling them that although the tragedy of Jerusalem, well described in the Scroll of Lamentation that Jeremiah, his contemporary, uh, wrote, well described in the last few chapters of the Book of Kings, Second Kings, when Jer destruction of Jerusalem is destroyed, is described. The idea was that while all the people were lamenting terribly on the outcome of this ten of the 10 year siege of Jerusalem, everybody was mourning, everybody was lamenting. There was one person who had transformed the tragedy into a source of inspiration. That man was Ezekiel. He told the people, I had been shown the heavenly chariot in heaven. And in the future, at that point, we didn't know when this future will be. In the future, 
there would be another temple in Jerusalem. Chapters 40, 48 in the books of Ezekiel are the description of the third temple. He didn't know when and if there would be, but he had assured his listeners that the divine inspiration that was in the foundation of the first temple, which was replication of the desert tabernacle, would one day become available one more time, because when an earthly temple was destroyed, the heavenly temples are intact. That is a great benefit of having heavenly temples. Everything that humans do, other humans can destroy. And the temple in Jerusalem, which was a masterpiece, was destroyed by the Babylonians as a result of the political situation at that time between Syria, Egypt, Babylon, and so on. The temple was destroyed. However, a next temple, a second temple, would be built 70 years later. Ezekiel didn't know that a second temple would be built. But he did know that if he would not manage to keep the memory of the first temple, there would never be another temple. The priesthood is about collecting memories collecting documents, writing down things of importance, teaching them, trans transmitting them from generation to generation. They can claim heavenly inspiration, as in the case of Moses from the, son, from the tribe of Levi. They can, they can claim sacred dynasty, as in the case of Aaron, the brother of Moses where through father-son, father-son, the priestly tradition is being transmitted from generation to generation. And they can claim divine prophecy, as other priest prophets would have, like Jeremiah, like uh, Ezra, like, uh, like Yechezkel. However, the point of importance is they never invent ex nihilo. They don't start from nothing. They have an ancient written tradition, a sacred tradition, which they revive in their imagination. Because what was that Ezekiel transmitting to his listeners? He had been a high priest in Jerusalem. He had known about the inner, sanct the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. He knew the priestly traditions, the written traditions, the oral traditions, the ritual traditions, and he was able to transmit it to his listeners in a visual, prophetic way. Generations later, when the people would return to the land and would start to rebuild the temple, they would have the written memory of the temple as it was written by priests and prophets of earlier generations. Now, they never managed to rebuild the second temple in the way that the first temple was rebuilt. However, the principle, the principle that was transmitted by Moses and Ezekiel, that the foundation of the earthly temple is a heavenly vision of the temple was well kept for 1,500 years because a whole mystical literature was called Heichalot literature, which means Heichal is a temple. Not, not temple as this synagogue, respectful as it is, but temple as the temple in Jerusalem, the one and only temple in Jerusalem, which was considered to be God's place, God's dwelling, God's presence. The idea was that while there are no more earthly temple, after the year 70 of the common era, that's when the second temple was destroyed, the heavenly temple is there forever and ever. Thousands of pages were written in poetical lines, 
to describe the heavenly temples, to describe the heavenly priests. They are called the ministering angels. The priests were ministering in the temple and the angels were ministering in the heavenly temple. The one Jerusalem temple had certain, as, certain aspects in it. There was an altar, there was fire, there were sacrifices. The heavenly temples have poetry instead of animal sacrifices. They have flames as the flames of the sacrifices. They have different ideas which reflect the earthly temple. But the major thing was that every part of the service on earth was duplicated or reflected in the heavenly service on heavenly service in heaven. The authors of the mystical poetry called Heichalot literature. Heichal, as I said, is temple. Heichalot is the plural, as temples with S in the end. The lit mystical literature that is called the Heichalot literature is based on the idea of Ezekiel, that there is a heavenly temple and heavenly chariot in heaven while none is available anymore on earth. Only in the heavenly temple, they had added one important aspect. They would multiply it by seven. Instead of one temple, they would have seven heavenly temples. Instead of one high priest, they would have seven archangels, which are like high priests. Instead of 24 priestly watches that counted the time and observed the time in the temple, they would have 24,000 angelic servants who are counting it. So everything that was on earth was magnified, beautified, multipled in the heavenly temples. Now, people would write down the imagine, imaginary heavenly temple according to the lines of Ezekiel vision, later priestly prophetic visions, which are called songs of the Sabbath liturgy, later visions, which would be called the traditions of the poetical Levitical songs. They would combine various traditions of the ancient temple worship and they would transform it into mystical, poetical, liturgical tradition. Where would they keep it, you may ask? When would they use it? In the synagogues that were built after the destruction of the temple. Because every synagogue was considered to be mikdash me'at. That's the definition of a synagogue. Mikdash me'at. Mikdash is a temple in Hebrew. Mikdash and the hechal are two parallel words which refers to the temple. Mikdash me'at means a small temple. Every synagogue became to be a memorandum of the temple, a memorial of the temple. Now, of course, it didn't have the same sanctity. It didn't have the same strict restrictions of purity. But in every temple, you would find something that reflects the memory of the Jerusalem temple. Do you have some kind of menorah in your own temple? Yes, probably you do. In every Jewish synagogue, there is a menorah. Where was there a menorah? In the temple, only in the temple. There was no menorah elsewhere. The menorah would be in the temple, the, what we call today the ark, the place that we keep the uh, Sefer Torah. In every temple of any denomination, those two things would be the ark where the Torah is being kept and the menorah as a symbol. What was there in the ark in the Jerusalem temple and in the tabernacle? What was there in the ark? The Ten Commandments, the stone 
tablets of the Ten Commandments, which are the basis of the Torah that we are reading until today. So it was about symbols of memory. It was about recreating artifacts and accessible objects to represent the lost past. For that, we needed a synagogue. The synagogue would become Mikdash Me'at, a small temple, where different traditions were kept. Now, of course, it's not in every synagogue that mystical liturgy was sung. But in some synagogues in the land of Israel, in the first few centuries after the destruction, people had written thousands of lines of mystical liturgy called Sifruta Hechalot. They had various ideas about it. The common denominator to all of it is that it is anonymous literature. They did not want to convey the identity of the author, of the poet, of the priest poet that might have trans, uh, transmitted it from generation to generation. They wrote it as a revelation of angelic liturgy. They didn't think at all that the identity of the person that it was revealed to has any importance. On the contrary, they thought that the textual revelation is of the highest importance. This is beautiful literature. It is poetical literature, which has no reference to any earthly matters. It is referring to only to the heavenly temples. And the more imaginary and the more beautiful and the more liturgical it is, the more it is transmitted, the ancient tradition of the ritual in the temple that was not available after the year 70 of the common era for 2,000 years. But we must remember, written memories are much more rich than any buildings because memory and imaginations are much more diversified and beautiful and inspiring than any walls. So the people who wrote this liturgy, who gave up their singular identity, had committed themselves to transmit from generation to generation what was the center of memory for their predecessors. There are hundreds of years of difference between the Jerusalem temple, and if you wouldn't remember anything of what I said, I want you to remember only one sentence. For thousand years, there was a temple in Jerusalem, according to biblical historiography and Hellenistic historiography and archeological findings, for thousand years, there was a temple in Jerusalem. For the first millennium before the common era, there was a temple in Jerusalem. This Jerusalem temple that was inaugurated in the 10th century before the common era and was working with the, uh, one, with the one stop of 70 years between 587 to 515, that was when the second temple was built. For 1,000 years, there was a temple in Jerusalem. Now, if we would think that probably there were human beings and there were disputes and some things were better and some things were worse, but people did not come to commemorate the human expression of it. People came to commemorate the divine inspiration that was in its foundation. What did they write? They were trying to describe the heavenly holy of holies. What was in the heavenly holy of holies according to their description? Spirits of justice, spirits of truth, spirits of holiness, spirits of knowledge. So we are told 
in the beginning of the songs of the Sabbath liturgy that was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran. The Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran are remnants of a huge priestly library that was authored in the last few centuries before the Common Era. It has a big part of liturgical writings. Liturgi liturgical, that means musical, poetical descriptions of mystical kind of the invisible world of the heavenly temples. They would say, in the Holy of Holies are spirits of knowledge, spirits of truth, and spirits of justice. I'll say it in Hebrew. Ruchei da'at emet v'tzedek bekodesh kodashim, ruchei Elohim chayim ruchot me'irim. Spirits of justice, of truth, and of holiness are in the Holy of Holies. Spirits of life, of eternal life, are illuminating the sacred space. Now it is important to understand that the whole idea of a temple was not for the sake of building buildings, was not for the sake of offering sacrifices. It was for the sake of expressing and visualizing the abstract ideas of the utmost importance. Knowledge, truth, peace, justice, those were celebrated and transmitted and ritualized in eternal cycles of knowledge and ritual and memory by the priestly tribe with the, old, with the members of the covenant, which ascribe to that the utmost importance. I would try in a very short way to describe what was their major idea, and then we would pass to the second stage of the Kabbalah. But I would like you to know what was the reason for writing all that mystical literature, anonymous mystical literature, invisible mystical literature, what did they try to keep? They tried to keep the idea that liberty is the most important value. They start the story by saying that we were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt and we were liberated by God. That much everybody knows, because of that we celebrate Pesach. However, what we don't know is that the idea of liberty was the foundation of the whole entire priestly heritage, which claimed that there is a connection between cycles of liberty, that means stopping from work every seven days, cycles of liberty, that means celebrating seven appointed time of the Lord every year, Cycles of liberty, that means that every seventh year, you would stop from working and convene only to study. That's what in the university they call sabbatical until today. But only in the universities they were clever enough to make sure that everybody has a year off for study every seventh year. But that was the priestly idea of the sabbatical year, that every seventh year, all people would stop from work, God would furnish for them, God would for provide for them, and every seventh year, the land should rest, the people should rest, and they should convene in order to study. And every seven sevenths of years, that's a jubilee, they should stop from work and they should concentrate on studying and they should concentrate on freedom. That's when all debts are annulled, all the slaves are freed, and 
the whole world like starts from the beginning. You don't owe anything to anybody, nobody owes to you. You start like from zero, you own nothing, nobody owns you, and you start a whole new liberated world. That's the idea of the year of Jubilee. Those seven cycles, every seven day, every seven appointed time of the Lord in the first seven months of the year, a year that starts in the months of the spring, and commence for the first seven months, Nisan, Iyar, Sivan, Tammuz, Av, Elul, Tishrei, those were the first seven months where all the seven holidays are taking place. Those times of liberty are to be commemorated. Those times of liberty were kept by the priests in the temple because the word temple is derived from the word temp. Temp is time. Temporal, temporary, temp is just time. Temple is a place where you commemorate time. Mysticism is written when you feel that your holy cycles of time are endangered. When you feel that your idea of holy times, which are times of liberty, so we are told in the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, where they tell us that they were working to keep Mo'adei Dror. Mo'adei means the appointed time of the Lord. Dror means liberty, means freedom. So it's the cycles of freedom that they are keeping every seven days, every seven months, every seventh year, every seven sevens of years. And for that they needed a temple because in order to commemorate time, you had to find way to represent it. Remember, in antiquity, people had no watches. They didn't have calculators. They didn't have cellulars. They didn't have TV screens that tell them what time it is, what day. They had to find way to devise the long durée of calculation of times. They would do that in the temple. For that, the temple was working. Sacrifices were to note difference between the day today and the Sabbath. Any of you who had studied the portions of the law, which is called Bamidbar, numbers would know that there are different cycles of sacrifices. Every day of the year, there is the daily sacrifice. 52 times of the year, there is the Sabbath sacrifice. And there is the additional sacrifice, 18 days of the year, which are the appointed time of the Lord, and another 12 times, which are the beginning of the month. So we would have accumulative cycles of sacrifices, which were indicating time. Sacrifice is a mechanism to create fire. The, you, the uh, length of the fire or the span of the fire would indicate, is that a usual day, a day of work, or is that a festivious day, a day of rest? What would you do in the day of rest? You would convene together to study. That is the reason that the Jews are the only one among all people of antiquity in the place where the land of Israel is that are speaking their language, are capable to transmit from generation to generation. Because the other huge nations, great and mighty, cultured and powerful, didn't have a scheme of time, of liberty, which are times of scholarship. The Jews of all kinds used to convene together every Shabbat to listen to the word of God being read to them aloud. No Babylonians are speaking with us today. No Sumerians, no Chittites, no Prisites, no Sumerians, Egyptians, Phoenicians, 
Babylonians, all those are not speaking anymore in any living language. Hebrew is contemporary of the Sumerians and the Babylonians, the Akkadians and the Egyptians. That is contemporary culture where the Bible was written. People who learn Hebrew can read the Bible with no problem at all. But we are the only one who say that we are speaking in this ancient language, while all other contemporary ancient languages and cultures had disappeared. It is important to understand that this cycle of freedom is cycle of scholarship, because when you convene together in what we call in Hebrew, those are the appointed time of the Lord, holy convocation of reading. אלה מועדי אדוני מקראי קודש אשר תקראו אותם במועדם. That you should call in their appointed time. The priests were those in charge on calling them in their appointed time, and they were in charge to transmit to the people the written knowledge and the written memory. As I said, after a thousand years of temple in Jerusalem, celebrating those ideas of cycles of scholarship and cycles of liberty, there was no more temple in Jerusalem. But the ideas that the temple had concentrated were transmitted from generation to generation through the poetry and the mystical literature. In the first millennium, we call it Heichalot literature. In the first millennium of the Common Era, we call it Heichalot literature, mystical literature, where the angels are talking on seven-day cycles, on sacrificial cycles, on knowledge and justice and peace and truth that are celebrated in the heavenly temples as a paradigm to what should be celebrated in the earthly temple. That was taking place in a millennium where the Jews were not allowed to enter to Jerusalem. This is a chapter in our history that most people are not aware of. But after the destruction of the temple in the year 70, and after the second rebellion in the year 132, Adrianus Caesar had prohibited the Jews to enter to Jerusalem. He raised Jerusalem to the ground altogether, Temple Hill and Temple Mount and all the other things around it. And he had built a new city. His name was Ilia Capitolina. The marker of Ilia Capitolina was that Jews were not admitted to the city. They were allowed once a year to stand on the Mount of Olives and to cry. That was in the 9th of Av, the day that the temple was destroyed. There was no Jew in Jerusalem in the 2nd century, in the 3rd century, in the 4th century, in the 5th century, in the 6th century, and in the 7th century, only in the Muslim conquest. Jews were admitted to live in the margins of Jerusalem. In the Christian time and in the pagan time, Jews were not allowed to enter. That is the time when they wrote the beautiful poetry of the Hechalot literature, the temple's literature. Because when they were denied any access to any earthly temple, they had yielded a huge literature describing in a beautiful way the paradigm of the heavenly temple. They had done that, as I said, from the days of Ezekiel in the 6th century before the Common Era when the first temple was destroyed, and they had done it until the year 1096. What had happened in 1096? The Crusades had started. The Jews in Europe, in Italy, along the Mediterranean, 
were living in small communities that had started as communities of slaves and exiles. It's important to remember that. We don't always like to remember that, but we should remember that. The first Jews came to Italy as slaves with the army of Titus, who had destroyed the, first, the second temple in the year 70. Those of you who were in Rome may recall the arch of the, the Victory Arch, where the Jews are described as the slaves. That was exactly so. They were brought to Europe as slaves. This judicial point was of great importance, because 1,000 years later, when they would expelled from various places in Europe, they would be told, you came penniless slave here. You have to leave all your property behind, because it's not yours, it's ours. You came to Italy as slaves with no property of your own. All what you had done is ours, and thus we can expel you without any without any reservation, because you are not free people, you were slaves. The Jews were expelled in every century of the second millennium under different charges and allegations. But before they were expelled, they were slaughtered in the course of the Crusades between 1096 to 1296. In those horrible years, the Jewish communities of the Rhineland, the Jewish communities of France, the Jewish communities of the border with Spain and France, they were devastated by the crusaders who were on their way to free Jerusalem from Muslim control, but on the way they said, while we are going there to free the Holy See, we may as well kill the heathens on our way. The only heathens in Europe were the Jews. They were killed in Regensburg, in Spira, in Worms, in Magenta, in this whole area of the Rhineland and northern France, most Jewish communities were erased from the ground. The remnants of those Jews, the very few that had survived of those communities, are those that took upon themselves to teach the ethos of Kiddush Hashem, because many members of those communities committed suicide instead of being taken by force into Christianity. Not only they had committed suicide, they had killed their own loved children because they didn't want them to become Christianized against their will. The ethos of the Jews killing themselves and killing their children is called Kiddush Hashem. Kiddush Hashem means the freedom to die as I choose rather than the freedom that you take, you the other, to enforce me to live as you choose. The choice is a great matter here. Kiddush Hashem means that Jews chose to commit suicide and to kill their loved ones so they would not fall victims to the church missionary attempts. The crusaders were those who expressed the Christian idea that Jews should be converted to Christianity, that the world at large should be converted in Christianity. They went to the Holy Land to convert the Muslims to Christianity, and they fought there for 300 years from 1096 to 1296 and onwards. They were fighting there to made the world Christians. Any Jew that they met on their way, they enforced him to become Christians, and the Jews were, were refusing. As I said, they chose the horrible solution of killing themselves and their children rather than become 
Christianized against their will. There were Jews who did choose the other option. However, the moral ethos was we would much rather die freely out of our own will as Jews much rather than be converted by force by the church. That is the background where the Book of Splendor is being written. Sefer Zohar, or the Book of Splendor, the new stage of Jewish mysticism, which is called Kabbalah. You all heard the word Kabbalah in the American way of saying it, Kabbalah. It is not Kabbalah, it is Kabbalah, because it is derived from the Hebrew verb lekabel. It means just to receive, lekabel. It's a very simple Hebrew verb. Lekabel, to receive Kabbalah, what we had received from our past. Now, that is a true perception of people who felt that they need to invent the past in order to make a future. This is what Kabbalah is about. First and foremost, we need to remember, Kabbalah is a resistance in writing authored by anonymous writers who wanted to fight the agony of Jewish destiny in the first few centuries of the second millennium of the common era where major Jewish communities were erased from the ground. Anybody who knows anybody with the name of Shapira, Worms, Magenza, Mainz, Regensburg, those are people who are the remnant remnants of the survivors, the very few survivors of the Crusades. The Jews, as I, as I said, the Jews in Europe remembered very well the tragedy of the dead communities. However, while they lamented it terribly, and they had a memorial day, and they had, a lot, uh, and they had quite a lot of uh, chronicle literature giving us all the hor horrific details of what parents had to do to their children before they killed themselves, they remembered it very well. Now they said the following, we cannot fight our oppressors. However, we can create an alternative existence. That's what Kabbalah is about. We cannot fight, in the historical arena, the fighting crusaders. We cannot fight the overwhelming church. We cannot fight the lords that give us shelter, but when we need their shelter, they are not there to give it. We need to remember that our life are very precarious all the time, and the only place that we have complete freedom is in our imagination. In our imagination, we may create alternative world, which would assure us a bridge between the remembered past and the hoped for future. That's what Kabbalah is about. How do we do that? First of all, we take the position of resistance spiritual resistance, not actual resistance, because they were not able to. There was no way that the unarmed Jews or the weaponless Jews, weaponless Jews could fight the crusaders. I'm sure that you all saw in the museums how they were all wearing those metal guards and metal shields and, you know, the Jews had no weapon and had no metal guards and had no horses and had no way to fight for their life. They were killed by the thousands. However, those who had remained had adopted a point of resistance. And they said, now in our imagination, we would imagine a world where we wish to live. And for that, we are going to invent the past and we are going to invent the future in our imagination. There is no need to write the name of the writer. This is 
a transmission of memory that we transmit from generation to generation. They chose the following strategy. They looked backward to the past and said, where should we start this story? Should we start it in the biblical past? No need. This part is well known to the Jews who are reading the Torah every week and who are following. We're talking on the traditional world where there was no such a thing as a secular world. There was only religious traditional world. All the Jews, as well as all the Christians and all the Muslims, were religious observance. However, while they were keeping in their daytime the usual Jewish tradition of observance, in the nighttime they had developed a new consciousness. They looked backwards to history and they said, where should we start? We want to start to tell a new story. They looked back on thousand years earlier, on the one generation that expressed their suffering. That was the generation of Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. That is the generation of the rebellion against the Romans. Exactly as their predecessors who had rebelled against the Romans, they wanted to be those who rebel against their historical uh, oppressors. However, as I said, it was entirely impossible. They were dispersed all over Europe. They were few. They were devastated. But in their imagination, they said, we would invent a leader. His name is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rashbi or Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. He is the author of the Book of Splendor, allegedly, not really, but in the imagination. He is the leader of a movement of people who would say, we are not living according to the way that you describe us. This is the very time, at the very same decade, the Lateran Church had imposed on the Jews to wear a yellow patch in 1245 Lateran Council, to wear the yellow patch. Why yellow patch? Because that was the color of the harlots and prostitutes, to distinguish them from respectable women. Any woman who dressed in yellow was a prostitute, and the Jews were imposed to wear yellow patches, the same famous yellow patch many years later that the Germans had reinvented, but that was no reinvention. That was the church choice of a sign to mark the Jews as the evil others, as those who had killed the Lord, as those who are known to be killing children, as those who would be charged with blood libels, and all kinds of things like that, which the Jews could not have fought back. However, in their imaginary world, where they, when they convened together in small study groups, they had said, let us create a world of alternative existence. The leader, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the literary figure of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, a sage from the second century, had become to be the leader of the 13th century, fighting Jews in the arena of the imagination. They would describe something as follows. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and group of his friends and students would be walking in the fields freely. That's a time when Jews were not allowed to walk freely anywhere. They were confined to the ghettos. They were confined to places where they were allowed to live and were not allowed to go elsewhere. They were not allowed to choose any profession they wished to engage in. They were allowed only to do with banking and usury because that was prohibited to the Christians. And at that oppressing time, the Jews were describing free people hiking on the fields because they were not allowed to walk anywhere. They said that while they are hiking on the fields, a new revelation is coming upon them. 
They describe it as, while we are free people, while we are walking out in the field, some of us, mainly Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, would be a, a vessel of inspiration. New words would come to him, new ideas would come to him, new prophecy would come to him, and he would impart it to the students, and the student would respond, and they would playfully engage in new interpretation of the holy text. That's what they were doing. They were taking scriptures, and they were playing with it, with no need of any textual precedence, with no need of any halachic confinement, with no need of any rational explanation. They were just playing with words and using the nature of the Hebrew language that is a language of, uh, of consonants without vowels to play with alternative readings. You know, in English, between every consonant, you have a vowel. In Hebrew, there are no vowels. So you can read the consonants as you please. It takes a long time to learn to read Hebrew because you need to learn to decipher what is the proper way. Should you say sefer, book, or should you say sipur? It is written exactly in the same way. Should you say sapar, a barber, or should you say sapir? All those words that I just now said are written exactly with the same three letters, Samech, Pei, Rish. However, it's upon your intelligence to decipher what is the proper word according to the, content, to the context of the sentence. But that also allows us alternative system of reading. We may read every word as we please when we are free from the constraint of literal meaning. Now, let me make it very clear. In their daily life, they were as everybody else. They were fully observant Jews who were living as obedient life as everybody, as every other member of the Jewish community. At their night life, at their lunar life, at their resistant life, they were studying together playing with words. They would imagine that they're walking in the fields. They would say, every night a river of light is issued forth from paradise, illuminating us with new ideas, with imaginary things. They would take the Hebrew verse, Venahar Yotzeme Eden, which means, and the river issue forth from Garden of Eden, and they would read the word river as an other possibility of reading, which means luminosity. Nahar, Nehara, Nehara is illumination, illuminosity. And they would say that a river of light is issued forth from Garden of Eden every midnight and would illuminate the consciousness of the students. The students who are closing their eyes to this world, you remember I said mysticism is about closing your eyes to this world, a river of light would illuminate the consciousness of those who close their eyes to this world and are imagining the past and imagining the future. They would tell us all stories about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his friends, only this is not the Mishnaic sage that they are talking about. It is a mystical hero that transcends borders. The one mark of the Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the Mishnah is that he was a rebel against the Romans, and they liked that. He lived 40 years in a cave, and according to the Midrashim, Elijah had taught him all kinds of secrets. That was suffice to make him a hero of the mystical tradition of the 13th century. He, at this point, he is walking in the fields in the imagination of those who study. They are playing with words, and they are inventing new meanings, and they create at the same time a whole new perception of divinity. 
They said in truth, so Rabbi Shimon is telling us what we didn't know before. God is divided to a whole new divisions. He is a male and he is a female. He is transformative. He is rich in divisions. He is the infinite God and he is ten spheres of revelation. He is the creator and he is the one who identifies with us in our exile. The female side, the Shekhinah, which means the word means just divine presence. Shekhinah is divine presence. He is God is divided, as I said, to male and into female, and the female part, the Shekhinah, is the expression of exile. However, here exactly they express their hopes. The marker of the Shekhinah, the female side of the goddess, is that she is transformable. She is transformative. She can change from desolated daughter of Zion, which she is all week long, into the queen bride, which she is on Sabbath. When you sing together, this is a mystical song written in the 16th century by Shlomo Alkabet, who was an important student of Zohar. The song says, come beloved, no, go the beloved, towards the bride, towards the, who is the bride? The bride is the Shekhinah. The bride is the female side of the goddess, but at the very same time, she is the incarnation of the community of Israel. All week, this community, in earth and in heaven, is in exile. She is suffering, but in the seventh day, in Shabbat, she becomes to be a bride, a queen, a beloved, a unified couple. So. The experience of exile is during the six days where she sits in the hafecha. Hafecha means an upside-down world. She is emek habacha, the valley of death, the valley of torment. That's the song tells you in a concise way. That's where she is in the six days of the week. But in the seventh day, she is transformed into the future that we all yearned for, peaceful liberty, equality, normal life, continuity, that is the symbol of this Shekhinah. This had been devised in the 13th century Spain mystical circles who chose anonymity in order to create a hope of a world of redemption that will come. Now, after they had devised this idea of male-female part of the goddess of transformative female side, they would say the following. The way to cross the bridge of the Valley of Torments is by sticking to the imagination of the alternative existence. We would create in our imagination playful world of freedom of interpretation. We would create in our imagination world of freedom where justice and peace and liberty are reigning, where everybody is welcome to participate in the beautiful process of creativity. And everybody should know that by this very process, he or she are going to reach to the world of redemption. Now, when I said he or she, I, I exaggerated because this is really only for men that history was. But in general, when they talk on the redemption of the community, of course, they talk about 
men, women, children, and everybody. But there is one thing that I would like to make clear. The new idea of God as male and female, which are separated during the week and are united in the Shabbat, is a reflection of the profound fear of the Jewish people that they would suffer extinction. And there was a very high percentage of chance that they would be extinction, that there would be extinction, because the chance to survive as a Jewish minority, the only non-Christian minority in Europe, through the Crusades, through the time of the 1391 persecution in Spain, the 1348 false allegation of poisoning the wells, the 12th century false allegation or 13th century false allegation of blood libels which caused the expulsion from England, the 1348 black epidemic that caused the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, not from, sorry, from France, and the 1492 expulsion from Spain and 1497 expulsion from Portugal. All that had threatened their existence severely. But they kept saying, if we would continue to reinterpret our tradition, to reinterpret every concept of the Hebrew word through this idea of the infinite meaning of language, we would survive only in the world of the imagination, if not in the world of actuality. Because as long as there would be 10 people who are capable to study, to pray, to commemorate, to reinterpret, to transmit important ideas from generation to generation around scholarship, study, and cycles of rest and liberty, we would survive even if our existential survival is, a great, is in great danger. They had, done it, they had done it profoundly all along the second millennium. In the Hebrew University Gershom Sholem Library, we have 18,000 volumes of Kabbalistic literature. All of them are written in Hebrew and in Aramaic, and all of them express the hardship of exile and the yearned for redemption. I started a sentence ago by saying that it's important to me that you would understand that the new depiction of the divine as male and female, which are united in the, uh, in the Sabbath and are separated during the week, is a reflection of the existential fear and hopes of the Jewish people. Because in this time of unification, so the Book of Splendor is telling us in Shabbat, new souls are being born. We're talking on all that is imaginary, all that is mystical, all that is poetical. But they say that when the beloved, and the, when the beloved bride and her bridegroom, or when Akadosh Baruch Hu and the Shekhinah are united, new souls are being born. When they are united, there is a chance of continuity. However, in order that they would be united, it is entirely upon the people of Israel to unite them. This is where they introduce the idea of tikkun olam. The world is broken and shattered. The existence is utterly broken. However, it is upon us, every member of the community, to rectify the broken world to enhance the broken world, to embetter the broken world, because this is the way that we hasten redemption. So they connected redemption with the human activity 
of correcting the broken world. So the Jews, while they were playing with imaginary alternative worlds during their free time at night, would be engaged in a lot of actual activity of charity, communal responsibility, study, scholarship, hermeneutics, and so on in their daytime as well. So they would say that every Jewish community would have a center of study. Every Jewish community would teach all its children to read. There was no Jewish male child who didn't know to read. While in Europe, the first school for general public was introduced in the ninth century of the Common Era. In the Jewish community, from the days of Moses and Aaron, where it is said, you should teach your children to read, all the Jewish male children learn to read for more than 3,000 years. While in Europe there was dark ages and ignorance, we never had dark ages. In what's called in the European history dark ages, we had Rashi and we had Balea Tosafot and we had the great yeshivot in France and we had the Geonim. We never had dark ages in the sense of illiteracy. There was never illiterate Jewish community because the freedom of imagination, the freedom of creativity, the freedom of study, that were all possible because we didn't have a church that told us what to read and what to think and how to play with, we had managed to survive in a very hard, very hard conditions because of the fact that we said that cycles of freedom, time for learning, ideas such as justice and peace and truth and knowledge should be transmitted from generation to generation. All that was done for the sake of the community. It was not done as an individual search or as an individual quest. It was done as the resistance of the community against its oppressors and for the benefit of the community against all the devastating powers of death that had threatened it. Jewish mysticism, as I said, is about creating a library of the vanquished and the losers in the historical arena who had fought and resisted the atrocity of existence by creating a wonderful imaginary world. What is done in the West Coast, with all due respect, has nothing to do, and thank God for that, has nothing to do with exile, with oppression, with fear, with devastation, with communal benefit. It is done for the sake of a personal, spiritual, Quest. This is fine, but it has nothing to do with Kabbalah. Thank you very much.